give this evening. I'm sure Cooper's hymn is familiar to many of you, if not all of you, but I commend it to you as a prayer, a prayer that you may bring before the Lord on your own, in your own closet, those times when the heart seems to be so difficult to touch, to be moved, just to pray. The very language, return. As soon as you're praying, return, you're implying that there's been a loss, that there's been a losing out with God. And so often that's the case, and many times we don't even know it. May the Lord help us. Luke chapter 9 this evening, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Luke chapter 9 as we continue to make our way through this gospel. You've come as far as verse 22, so we begin with verse 23. It may be helpful for us to go back to where we began last Lord's Day, verse 18, so we'll do that and read through to the end of verse 27. So this is the word of the Lord. You have the privilege of hearing it. Make sure you hear it with profit as it is read aloud this evening. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? The answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of the truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Amen. And we're reading there at verse 27. We're going to still our hearts in prayer and look to the Lord for His help this evening. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this moment, this time, we know that there will be no profit unless Thou dost help by Thy Spirit. So in this very moment, we throw ourselves at Thy mercy And we plead with Thee to take Thy Word and cause it to awaken, to revive, to save, as Thou dost see fit across this congregation. Even for those that watch on, Lord, we pray that Thou wilt take Thy Word, make it fitting. Indeed, Lord, we ask, take the preacher. Grant that we might be borne along in the Spirit, by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, and that there would be 
signs that will follow. God, we read a passage like this, how we need help in receiving it with profit. So hear us then this night. Come into this place. Stand in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We enter this evening, beloved, to consider one of the most devastating passages in all Scripture for those that imagine that they can believe in Jesus Christ or have the benefits of the gospel on their own terms. The language of the Lord Jesus here is plain, it is clear, it is without any argumentation. The belief that we can take to ourselves everything that Jesus Christ offers, everything that we like about Him, the forgiveness of sins, the knowledge that we're going to heaven, that we can take all of that, but take it according to terms that we delineate is upturned, completely torn through. The argument of that is, is obliterated by the language of the Lord Jesus here in the passage that is before us. We're considering verse 23 and following of our focus tonight, where the Lord Jesus makes very plain where it says, He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, and so on. Now, upon reading Luke's account, you might imagine that it flows immediately from his uh, interaction with his disciples. What we dealt with last Lord's Day, we noted, if, just for those who may be here for the first time or maybe not familiar with the last couple of weeks, but verse 17 brings us to the end of the feeding of the 5,000. And the question that we raised last Lord's Day evening is when we come to verse 18 is, where are all the people? The Lord Jesus is alone praying his disciples were with him. And so you have a moving away from this scene of, of multitudes being around the Lord Jesus Christ. As I indicated to you, when you read Mark and Matthew, you see that a huge period of time had passed, at least a significant period of time had passed, until we come to this interaction at Caesarea Philippi, according to Matthew's gospel, where he's alone and gives this, this, this challenge to his disciples. What's the world say, and then what do you say about me? Which we looked at last time. But it flows on into verse 23 in such a fashion that we might read it and think that this is in the same scene. This is the same uh, event that's going on, but it's not. If you were to read Mark's account of this, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we find there, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I make mention of this not just for the pulling together of the synoptic gospels so that we have a proper understanding of what's going on in our mind. I do try to do that. But, but more to the point, I think it's vital to underline this in, in light of the idea that some have and have had for, for many years and still possess today the idea that one can be a believer and receive the benefits of Jesus Christ as a believer, that you believe in Him, that you have prayed a prayer and trusted Him, and maybe walked an aisle or whatever language or experience it may have been, that you've had all of that, but there's, there's another step. There's, there's being a disciple, but you can, you can be a believer without being a disciple. That you can have the benefits of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, 
the assurance that you're going to heaven, but you don't have to be a disciple. That's, a, that's another level. That's a, a different grade of Christianity. Well, if this was in the context of dealing with the disciples, we might be able to argue that more strongly. If it was just the disciples, he would be saying to them, well, you believed, now here's what to do. You need to go a little further. So you would argue the point that the disciples, when he is asking them about the confession, that they're believers, they, they confess him, they believe him and who he is, but, but now he's taking them up a stage to, now you need to move into the realm of discipleship. But as I say, that's where the context helps. The recognition that he calls the multitudes, and there's this uh, crowd of individuals of, of varying degrees of knowledge and interest that he calls to understand the language of verse 23 and following. And my point is this, that you can't separate it. You cannot separate true saving faith, being a genuine believer, from the responsibility to be a disciple. That is a lie. The Lord Jesus was not in the business of laying that out and saying to people, well, you know, you can, you can, you can just, just believe me, make some faint confession, and then maybe later you'll be able to move in when you're in a proper state of mind or more mature or something else happens in your life, then you'll become a disciple. That's not what we find. Indeed, the language of what's before us, I think, obliterates that altogether. Look at verse 24. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. What is it to lose your life? He's talking here about discipleship, but he is, is, he's not talking here about some separate realm where if you, you, you can pick and choose this, but you'll, you'll drop down to, you'll still have, you'll still save your life. No, no, if you, if you don't take this on, you lose. You lose everything. Verse 26 is maybe more clear. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory, in his fathers and of the holy angels. So he takes them into that great day of his return. And he puts before those individuals hearing him that part of this discipleship means that you're not ashamed of me and my words. So if you are ashamed of me and my words, it's not a matter that you, you drop down to the level of being a believer and everything will be fine. No, you'll be lost. You will be lost. So what we have here is a clear indication from the Lord of what it is to be a disciple. We might say what it is to be a believer. It's synonymous. There's no difference. So if there is someone here that is quite content to be in a condition where you say, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and you use general terms like that, but you get a little uncomfortable with the whole idea of being a disciple and being sold out, being consecrated, being committed this is a time to evaluate the true condition of your heart. I don't want to overcomplicate tonight. What we're dealing with is the startling reality of Christian discipleship. The startling reality of Christian discipleship. I, and I say startling reality because I think there is something startling about the words. The language here is designed to get attention. This isn't average language. This isn't everyday conversation. This 
is intended to get the attention of the listener and make them realize what is a Christian anyway? Like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does that look like? And it's far more than the confession that we looked at last Lord's Day. As I said, that was a test, but it's not a comprehensive test. It's not that you can say Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you can say He is the Christ of God, that you can make a confession like that and then be absolutely certain that you're on the way to heaven. That, at times, is the way churches are conducted, that they're content with confessions, they're content with statements, they're content that the children are catechized, and if they can rehearse the catechism, they agree and assent to the catechism intellectually, then that's sufficient, that's all that matters. But this is not the business the Lord Jesus Christ is in, merely bringing you to a condition of mental assent. It is a life commitment. And you can't read these words without being challenged. It doesn't matter how long you've been on the road. It doesn't matter how committed you have been. It doesn't matter how much love you have shown. You cannot read these words without feeling their power. My hope, my prayer... My desire tonight is that rather than me trying to wax eloquent and trying to find extra arguments to drive these points home, is that you just feel the, the power of the Word. There is an inherent power in this language. And if we can sit and have it wash over us and not impact us, there is something inherently wrong. I have just two main points. First, Christ gives the essence of it. That's the essence of Christian discipleship. And then we'll see that He gives encouragement for it as well. Christ gives the essence of Christian discipleship. Verse 23, He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There are three things here. First, a person that must be followed. A person that must be followed. If any man will come after me, or how it ends, and follow me. We are called to a following of Jesus Christ, to the exclusion of all others. The Lord Jesus has made this plain on numerous occasions. We'll just th look through a number of passages. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. I want you to note some verses tonight and allow what he does to men what he calls men to. So this is with Matthew. When he is, this is an example of what we're talking about here. Jesus passed forth from thence. This is Matthew 9, verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from hence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Go to chapter 19 of the same gospel. Matthew 19, verse 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. So there's this sense of following that you find throughout the Gospels, John chapter 8, John chapter 8. Here you get a little more illumination into the, the type of following that he is looking for, John chapter 8. And the benefits of what following him. 
John 8, verse 12. We'll begin there. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And I just want to underline there, the sense is that if you're not following him, you don't have this. So it's not a matter of just saying, oh, this is some benefit that I may or may not have. The sense is, no, if you, if you don't follow me, you are without what it is I offer. I'll come back to John chapter 8 later. I'll look at John 10 as well. John chapter 10. Verse 27. And I'd love to spend more time in this chapter, but in brief... Again, the Lord Jesus is delineating the difference between those who are truly His and those who are not. Those who hear Him, others do not. So He says in verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. So what is the evidence that they are truly sheep is the fact that they actually hear from Him. And then you may ask the question, well, how do I know someone hears from Him? Or how do I know I hear from Him? Well, you follow Him. But what does this mean? What does it mean to follow Him? Christ is saying in our passage that we must follow Him. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He must come after me. He must follow me. What does it mean? Well, first of all, we might say we must affirm who He is. We looked at this last time. There has to be this affirmation. It's not what is, it's not everything in our salvation, but it must be affirmed. We must be able to say, to the denial of all other Christs, all other gods, we must be able to say, as Peter said in verse 20, that He is the Christ of God. You are the anointed one. You are the Son of God. You're the one distinct from all others. You're the one that the Father has appointed to save. The Father has indicated that we are to follow. Indeed, no man can know God unless they follow you. So we must affirm who He is. We must accept Him as the Son of God. Do you accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God? That's part of it. Do you accept Him as the Redeemer of men? Do you accept Him as the only mediator between God and men? Again, there's no one else who can reconcile you to God. No saint, not Mary, no priest, no person other than Jesus Christ is designated as the mediator between God and men. Do you see Him as your prophet? What does it mean to have Jesus Christ as your prophet? What does it mean? Christ is our prophet. What's the, what's, what's the significance of that? You say Christ is the prophet, the prophet of God. And what you're indicating by that is He is the one who is the Logos, the voice of God, who communicates the mind of God, that I live my life giving allegiance to what He has to say, looking to what he has to say, desiring to hear what he has to say, and, and that you can see that in my life. So if you were to look at your life, you would end, it would, there would be clear testimony. And this is the thing. <laughs> if you were to be convicted of being a follower of Christ, would there be evidence to actually convict you if you were before a court? So you look at your life, well, Christ is my prophet. Well, if he's your prophet, then you listen to him, don't you? Well, do I give evidence of that? Do I read the Word of God? What's my mentality when I hear the Word of God, whether here or in other places? I'll tell you, beloved, we tend to, I'm not going to be too harsh on this, but we do tend to give away a lot when we are listening to the Word. 
And, and some of you, I, I know you're, you're very disciplined, you listen so intently, sometimes I, I feel, <laughs> one of the questions I always ask when I leave here is, was it warm in there today? <laughs> because sometimes it's warm for me, and I'm wondering, is it warm for you? And if it's warm for you, then I have a little more mercy towards you, because it's difficult to stay awake and pay attention when it's a little warmer. But if it's not warm, if Melanie says, no, it was, it was perfectly comfortable, then I say, well, there's no excuse. Everyone should have been paying perfectly, atten- paying perfectly attention to the Word of God. But that's what it means to say, Jesus is my prophet. I want to hear from him. His words are life. I want my life to be regulated by what he has said, what he commands. What does it mean to say, Jesus is the priest? He is our priest. Oh, he is the one who offers and is the offering for sin. I'm not looking to any other. I'm recognizing the value and merit of his blood. I can't sing of the cross without in some way my heart being drawn out after him. That I recognize that God in His perfect wisdom provided a way of salvation one way, one way alone. And all the religions of the world can in no way compare to the one way God has provided Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the priest of God, who offered Himself without spot unto God through the eternal Spirit. And I love it. I love to dwell on it, to think about it, to consider the efficacy of it, the value of it, the perfectness of it that I don't need anything else, that for the washing away of my sin, I have a priest, a great high priest. And he is king. He is my king, therefore I recognize he has a kingdom. And I am a member, I'm a citizen of that kingdom. Therefore I want to obey his word. I want to understand his laws. I want to submit to his counsel. I want to do his will. I want to in, in every way be listening, to be under his care, to be under his concern, his love and embrace, as well as fighting his battles and bringing glory to his name, exalting him and singing hosannas so the world knows there's none like Jesus. So we affirm who he is. It must be this affirmation, this explicit affirmation of who he is. That's clear from what we considered last Lord's Day. Whom say the people that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the old prophets, Jeremiah, someone else. But he gets to the heart of it. No, no, but, but what do you say? What do you say? Are you caught up in what the world has to say? Do you believe that this is something to debate? Or are you convinced? Peter answering, clearly, distinctly, with resolution in his heart, that he is the Christ of God. The Lord looks for that. So if we are to follow him, we must affirm who he is. A proper following him is not like the massive multitudes who followed him merely that their bellies might be filled in John chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. They're not following him simply for the material benefits that they can glean from him. They're not following him simply because he can improve your life in some way. That's an easy sell, isn't it? That kind of Christianity has been exported across the world, especially to those who are without third world countries being taught a form of Christianity that Jesus Christ is there to enrich your life materially. I remember coming across, I'll I'll hold back and going into detail, but we were doing outreach one day at a a bus stop and this kind of above ground train uh, that you have in Calgary. They call it C train. So we were at the C train and where the buses meet and doing outreach. 
And this, as we were leaving, this, this woman was there just round the corner from where we were giving out her own leaflets. And I, I took one and walked on, began to read it, and <laughs> I, I couldn't, I had to go back. I had to go back and talk to her. It was awful. It was terrible. It was, you talk about health, wealth, and prosperity. It was the most explicit health, wealth, and prosperity message I had ever come across. It, we weren't even apologizing for it. It wasn't even trying to mask it. It was just Jesus will, will make you rich materially. I tried to talk to her about, what about, what about the Son of Man who hath not where to lay his head? What about the disciples who suffered so greatly and so many of the saints through the centuries who have had nothing? Poverty has been so much of what they have experienced. So we must affirm who he is, but we must adhere to what he has said. We must adhere to what he has said. And this comes out in verse 26. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my, of my words. So he pulls in this whole idea of being ashamed of him. Well, certainly that would be in contrast to following him. There's a sense in which you say you follow me, but if you're ashamed of me, you're not really following me. But there's added to this the importance of what he says. His words also must be adhered to. And this is where I take you back to John chapter 8. Look at John chapter 8 for a moment. John 8. And John 8 is very, very instructive. It should be one of those portions you're familiar with. It has help, a lot of help apologetically, much help in, in various ways I'll not get into now, but So we just read earlier, verse 12, he's calling himself the light of the world, one of the I am's. There's a dialogue that continues then. And then you look at verse 30. So here he is in the synagogue, and we're told, as he spake these words, many believed on him. But that looks promising, doesn't it? Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, so he's, he's, he's honing in, he's eyeballing them specifically. Now, there were others that didn't believe, as you find out. But he is eyeballing those who profess to believe, who are making expression of believing. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the Lord Jesus isn't content to leave it at a, a base expression of belief. That would be akin to the confession of Peter, thou art the Christ of God, we believe who you are. But there has to be combined with that, not only a, only a belief in who he is, so he's called himself the light of the world, and there's a crowd of people who are, who are listening, and they're believing, and they're being persuaded by it, and then he immediately comes in and supplements what it is to follow him, what it is to really believe in him, with this language, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. You can't be ashamed of anything I say, not just me, but what I have said. You must continue in it. And so it's not just the fact that you value the word of God, but you, you express it, you incarnate it, you, you show it to the world by your life. And again, there are many Americans, many Americans who value the Word of God. They would have a Bible in their homes. They say the good book or whatever, and they, they speak reverently about it, but they do not live it. And they do not read it and imbibe it and try to practice it. There are passages that if they were really familiar with it, they would be horrified because it would cut across the entire way they live. 
I've met these people, people who think that they can live together without being married and think it's perfectly fine. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Oh, these things are, are all sorts of distorted ways because they haven't taken in the Word and they have no desire to truly continue in it. Well, Jesus says, if you're following me, it includes not being ashamed of my words, taking them to heart. This is what true discipleship is. It begins with this. There's a person that must be followed. Jesus Christ must be followed to this degree. We know who he is and we affirm it. We understand what he has said and we live it. And any denial of any of that will not cut the mustard, so to speak. It will not do. It's one of the remarkable things about the clear distinction between the gospel preached by Jesus Christ and the gospel preached by the average church today. We seem to be trying to do our best to make it as acceptable to the modern man as possible. And see, we will, we will cut out the portions we don't like. We will reword the, the passages that are too harsh in order that we get the, the largest number of people convinced If there's anything true about the ministry of Christ, he was, you, you can see clearly he's not really concerned about the numbers. Many believed. And we would have them baptized before he even put the period in. Many believed. Get them baptized. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you better continue in my word. So, I trust that we've made enough of an understanding of this. Our Lord is clear in various portions. Sober language, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Hebrews 5 verse 9, speaking of Christ, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Is that work salvation? Is that what he's saying? Is the apostle in Hebrews arguing that we obey him and then he is the author of eternal salvation for us? No, that's not what he's saying. But if you're not obeying him, you have no foundation, you have no testimony that gives evidence to the fact that he is the author of your eternal salvation. First John chapter 2, verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, sounds very legalistic. John, have you forgotten the gospel? John would say, no, I haven't forgotten the gospel. 
I just know what Jesus does when he actually takes in a soul and gives them a new heart. He that saith, I know him, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John was paying attention to Jesus. John was paying careful attention. He listened that day amidst the crowd. He was standing there paying close attention. I hear what you're saying, Lord. We've just made a big confession. You're the Christ of God. We're convinced of it. But I'm still listening. When you tell me what it is to follow you, it's not only to affirm who you are, it is to adhere to what you've said. Secondly, an idol must be rejected. An idol must be rejected. Not only a person followed, but an idol rejected. Let him deny himself. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. He must repudiate himself, deny himself. The language is the exact same language that's used in relation to Peter's denial of the Lord. He denied him. The wall forsake you all not. No, Peter, actually you're going you're gonna to deny me three times. Deny me. And what was he doing? What was Peter doing in his denial? He was doing whatever he needed to do, saying whatever he needed to say to express a clear desire to distance himself from the Lord Jesus. He didn't want to be acquainted with him. He didn't want to be seen alongside him. And he used his language. He said whatever he needed to say to try and create distance. Denying the Lord was creating distance from him and the Lord. He was trying to show that Christ meant nothing to him. The relationship, there was none. So, where there was an accusation of interest, are you not one of them? Are you not one of those disciples? Are you not one of those Galileans? Where there was an accusation of supposed interest, he denied it. And this is what the Lord says you are to do with yourself. So, there you are, and you like yourself. You do. <laughs> no man yet hateth himself. We, we like ourselves. We do. <laughs> Someone says something nasty about it and you rally to the defense in your own cause. That's not true. I never said that. I'm not like that and so on and so forth. You, 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 you really like yourself. You have a natural vested interest in yourself. We all do. And this leads to, by nature, self-centeredness personal idolatry, and ego. And the Lord says, you need to distance yourself from that. You need to deny. You need to eradicate that relationship you have with self. That needs to go. It needs to be denied. You need to do with yourself what Peter did with the Lord. I want nothing to do with him. So in essence, what are you saying? I want nothing to do with him. And there's a sense that's what the Lord is saying about you. 
you need to say about yourself, I don't want anything to do with me. I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. I can bring no good. In the flesh dwelleth no good thing. I want nothing to do with it. I deny it. I repudiate it. I want rid of it. You want to know what selfishness looks like? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Using scripture here to help you see what we are by nature and what we have to fight. The kinds of things that are involved in the self. Here are a number of considerations of self-sins. And it begins with a clear expression. Look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. This know also that in the last days, we're in those days, we're in it today, right now, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Yes, you know those memes and all that Instagram motivation speak? Love yourself. You have to Love yourself before you can do anything, accomplish anything. <laughs> well, yeah, see what that's feeding into? You see, you see what the Lord's warning here is warning. This, this is, you want to hear that. You want to hear language that gives you permission to exalt yourself. And the Lord is saying, in perilous times, in the last days, this is what men will love. They'll be lovers of their own selves. They'll also be covetous. Yes, because they can't get enough. They can't get enough. Nothing will satisfy. So they're always wanting more. They haven't denied self. And the self is like some... It has an appetite that can't be satiated. It's always looking more. And this is what men are like. They're boasters. <laughs> they, they, they want you to believe that, that they're better than they really are. So... It's not enough that they have all that they have and that they express all that they have. They want to, they want to exaggerate. They want to add to it. And they want to at least, at the very least, make you aware of how wonderful they are. This is self. This is, this is all self. They're proud, obviously, because they have an inflated sense of their own worth. Blasphemers. They have no sense of reverence to God. Blaspheme as if it's nothing. They think lightly of God. Their entire life is a blasphemy to God who gives them breath every day and they take it back, they take it all and they just throw it back in his face in, in selfish expressions of their own desires. God giving them the ability to live for him and they won't. It's blasphemy. Disobedient to parents. Yes, this is an expression of your rebellion against God. Disobedience to parents, part of the fifth commandment, is a, is a lack of recognition of authority in your life. And anyone who disobeys their parents tends to be someone who also disobeys God. If you find it easy to disobey your parents, you will find it easy to disobey God. I am sure there are times, of course, if our parents are asking us to do something that God forbids, that's a different scenario altogether. But that's not what we're dealing with. This is normal family relationships and the person who finds it easy to disobey their parents is someone who disobeys God. They have no time for God. 
Again, it's all about them. It's all about them. They won't recognize the divinely given, divinely given, not convenient, divinely given structures and orders of authority in society. They won't recognize them. Why? Because it's about the self. They want to raise it up. They're unthankful. Well, of course they are. Because it doesn't matter how much they have, they're always wanting more. And they can't find gratitude in anything. Gratitude is an expression of goodness, of, of mercy, of grace, of receiving things you don't deserve. But they think they deserve everything and more. This is self. They're unholy. Of course they are because they live by their own standard. They set their own standard of what it is to, to live life. They have no time for God's standard. Without natural affection. They can't even do the things the beasts do. Natural affection is that, that natural ability to care, to care for your children, to care for your family, to, to care for those that are, are your kith and kin, your community, those who are around you. They don't even have that. They're without natural affection. They, they are, they're, they're so far away from God's proper order that so filled with self that they have no time for anyone else. Truce breakers. You can't, they can make a vow and it means tilly squat. It doesn't mean a thing. They can say, I swear in the Bible, their hand on the Word of God, and the next minute, break the very vow that they made before the presence of God and men. They can stand in church and say, till death do us part, and it means nothing. The vow means nothing. Why? Because it's about self. It's about them. It's always about them. It's never about the Lord. It's never about others. It's about them. This is self. False accusers. Well, of course they are. They slander other people. Makes them look better. Incontinent. They have no control. Of course they don't. They don't no discipline at all. They won't hold back their words. They won't hold back their ways. They just do and say whatever they please. They're fierce. They're not gentle. That's the sense of it. They have no gentleness. They're despisers of those that are good. Yes. These people who are selfless. They don't like the selfless. Make them look bad. Traitors. Yes, even the causes of loyalty. I have no time for it again because it's about them. If I, if I give them over and it gets me out of a sticky situation, I'll do it. Heady, that is their head strong. Of course they are. Again, they write rules for themselves. High-minded, full of self, that is. Lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God. Having a form of God. Oh, here's the amazing thing. They have a form of godliness. They have some expression of religion. These are people who are, who are under some, the guise of some religious activity. But all these things are true of them. And this is a horror, because in the very multitude that Jesus was speaking these words to, this applied. Everything that we've considered applied to numerous individuals in the multitude that were before Jesus that day. So he says, deny. Let him deny himself. This is the idol that must be rejected. It is self. You need to smash it to pieces. And sometimes it needs to be smashed to pieces repeatedly. Or it needs to be like the Ephesians who brought all their stuff of their past, and they burned it. That's what you need to do yourself. Have you ever, 
Have you ever gotten before God about this one issue, about the problem of the self? You getting in the way of the will of God? Have you ever been brought to brokenness over you? Oh, you've... We don't find it difficult to get angry about others. What they say, what they do to hurt us and harm us. But Jesus says, look, look into that heart of yours. See that love you have for yourself and I need you to repudiate it. That's discipleship. So you have this allegiance to the person, you adhere to his word, but there's also this idol that must be rejected. Thirdly, a symbol that must be embraced. A symbol that must be embraced. Take up his cross daily. (laughs) See, We love events. We love conferences. We love big experiences. You know what Jesus loves? That you understand what matters, what really matters. Get rid of all the fluff. And you know what really matters. And you let that rule your life every day. The cross. Take up the cross. What's the cross? What does he mean by taking up the cross? The cross, of course, was a symbol familiar to those of the first century. Most had witnessed, no doubt, a crucifixion. Witnessed a man bearing his own cross, carrying the very instrument of his own death. The location where he himself would have his life ended. But the cross here symbolizes all hardship, however severe, brought upon us due to our loyalty to Christ. I think there's a connection between the cross and what is dealt with in verse 26. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words... There's a natural shame of the cross. And Christ is taking the symbol of discipleship, at least in part what it is, is you, you embrace the suffering that is caused by your connection to me. It's like bearing a cross. Your allegiance to me will bring trial. It will bring suffering. There will be times you won't get a job because you're a Christian. There will be times where you're sitting there and with your conviction about the Lord's day and the area of work in which you're involved where it's not acts of necessity or mercy and you're being offered this prestigious job and salary and they're saying, but we need you to work on the Lord's day. And your work's fine, it's not illegal work, it's right, but it's not necessary to do it on the Lord's day. And they're saying, we need you to work on the Lord's day. 
I know this has been dismissed a long time ago in North America. I mean, (laughs) we have diluted Christianity to make it as palatable as possible, including, I don't really care if the job requires me to be in on Sunday. It's a good job. I'm providing for my family. We can argue all the reasons why it might be good to take it. But the simple fact is there is the Lord's day. And as we ask for, congregate, assemble with my people. And we easily, there you have it. There you have this. This, this just been the perfect it's what you've been praying for. It's the very thing you've been asking. And, and you think, this is an answer to prayer. And then, and then I ask you to work on the Lord's Day. What do you do? What do you do? Do you say to yourself, well, I'm going to take it as an answer to prayer. God has provided it, and therefore he mustn't care too much if I'm working on his day. Or is it a test? Is it a test? Like it was for Melanie when she was applying for jobs and jobs and jobs after graduating as a dietitian. And you can hardly get a dietetics job in Northern Ireland. Most people have to move to England or Scotland. And, and there wasn't one, so we were planning to go to Australia and we make the commitment to go. And just as we made the commitment to go, a job came in. Something she had applied for ages ago, hadn't heard back, or said you're on a waiting list or something. And then they come back, and we're offering you the job. Just after we had said we'd go to straight, well, what do you do? Hey, we're not going to get an offer like this. We simply will not. There will not be another job offer like this again. We cannot assume there will be another one. So the plan is to go to Australia for six months. Are we willing to sacrifice the perfect job, the job you have trained all these years for, are we willing to sacrifice that perfect job for a six to 12 months trip to Australia as it was intended to be and come back and not have a job and never get a job like that offered again? What do you do? The timing of it to me was unmistakable. This is a test. Where do your loyalties lie? And when that perfect job comes in and it's going to require you to do something against your own conscience and be away from the Lord's house week after week after week doing things that don't really have to be done on the Lord's day, what do you do? We have so diluted commitment to Christ that we can't even begin to understand passages like this because we won't enter into them. But the person who has that perfect job as comes to them, and yet it's going to require one, one mark of compromise against their conviction. They go back to this passage and they think, I need to take up my cross here. I had to walk in there and say, I am happy to accept the job on alternative terms. I will not work on the Lord's day. 
I will work any hours you want, Monday through Saturday midnight. I will do whatever you want. I simply will not work the Lord's day. That, those are the only terms I put before you. And you see what happens. And it's wonderful what God will do. I remember one lady in Calgary. She never had any idea about maintaining the Lord's day, the Sabbath, no clue, but never heard it in her life. Years of being a Christian, no clue. I start touching on these things and she, she takes to heart and starts praying about it. And then when a job, she goes in and this, this was a job she wanted to have and, but it was going to require, they were asking her to work on the Lord's Day and she went in and she said in the interview, look, I would love this job. I'll work any hours you want but please, I, 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 I refuse to work on the Lord's Day. Please understand, I need to be, I'm a Christian, I need to be at church on the Lord's Day on Sunday and I asked for that day off. And if, that doesn't work I'm sorry but and she I don't know how the conversation unfolded but she got the job and she was so happy she was so happy about it I thought the Lord the the Lord blessed you. you you got the job you wanted and you got the Lord's day off because you spoke up you bore your cross and the Lord graciously undertook but there may be times you'll not get it but are you willing are you willing I ask you, beloved, have you ever sacrificed? Have you ever been in a scenario where you've had to count the cost? And what are we counting today? I mean, we're not talking here about if you don't accept this is off with your head. These are, these are simple, tiny little things. And yet we are so comfortable, we will still demand it's Christianity on my terms. And the Lord says, no, you have to take up the cross daily. That's every day. That means be on the alert. Every single day, there will be the possibility of your loyalty to Christ being tested. Every day. (laughs) Again, it's not events. It's not events. It's every day. And there's a blessing in this. This means if you mess up yesterday, you can start again today. Well, I'm going to take up the cross today. All right. If if you fail, you get back to the start. You do it all over again. You commit loyally to Christ. Take up your cross every single day. I believe some of you young people would do a lot more. You'd be a lot better off spiritually if you organized your your study around the Lord's Day and not in the Lord's Day. I say that with all the compassion of my heart. And I know your time is under tremendous strain. I know it. But I believe a well-kept Lord's Day is the best way to nurture our own hearts. It is to add fertilizer to the soul. It is... It, it, just to come in and say, I have nothing. I have nothing to do today but to rest, to cease, to cease from labor and to celebrate in the gospel. That's it. Just cease. Just cease and celebrate. Stop everything. Celebrate what the Lord has done. That. There's nothing as refreshing. I can just, I can relax. I'm not running out of here to go and get an assignment finished. There's no rest in that. None. How can you enjoy it? You're sitting here thinking, I have to get that done. I have to get what? When he stop? I'm going to I have to get out of here and get that done. You're still resting that. There's none. I, you're, you're chuckling, but you, you get the point. Just try. Do everything in your power to give yourself rest. Take up your cross. Follow Christ in every way he is expressed. He will bless you. He will. We must embrace this symbol. You will suffer your fair share in different measures and different times. You will. You may lose friends. You may have those that you've loved walk away from you. 
There may be all sorts of things that you suffer, but this is the calling. Then also note Christ gives encouragement for it. Not only do we have Christ giving the essence of discipleship, but he gives encouragement for it. And I say, before I say anything else, isn't it amazing that we need to be encouraged in this? How dull are we? How foolish are we? How selfish are we? That we need to be encouraged to take his words to heart. First of all, Christ helps men to properly evaluate their life. To properly evaluate their life. Verse 24, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Anyone, anyone at all, will save his, if he tries to save his life, if he tries to make it about himself, this goes back to the whole idea of the self, if he tries to do it, he tries to make it all, life's all about me, it's all about what I want, I'm trying to save my life, he will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life, that is, deny it, give it up, surrender it, give it to Christ, he will save his life. This text is found in all sorts of places, different contexts, in fact, so it's not just repeating it within the same setting. You'll find it in Matthew 10, verse 34 through 39, Luke 17, verse 33 and following, and John 12, 23 through 25. Again, the Lord saying the same truth, this, 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 this truth of... You imagine that all your energy to save your life has to go into saving your life. He says, no, no, let all your energy go into denying your life. Let your whole intent be deny your life. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And in turn, you save your life. And you will save it in all sorts of ways. You will save it from being a wasted life. Think of Jim Elliot. He knew what it was to actually lay down his life for the gospel's sake. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The wise man gives up what you think is important but isn't really to gain what really is important in its place. So you try to protect your life, save your life, save your soul. That's the word could be translated that way. But it's all about putting yourself first, making yourself center. You will lose it. You'll come to the end of your life and it will be a waste. So he, Christ helps men to properly evaluate their life. He said, you, you, want, you want a maxim to live by? You lose your life for my sake. And you'll gain far more than you ever imagined. Lose it. Give it up. Stop thinking it's so precious. And all the stuff and all the promises and all the glitter and all the American dream and everything else. If Christ comes and says, I want that or give that up or toss that out or whatever it might be, you say, here, Lord, take it. You've given it for a time. I happily give it over. Whatever it is, be prepared. Be prepared, Christian. This is what the Lord's preparing you for. Whatever comes at your life that seems to have a certain amount of value that persuades you to hold on to it and make it valuable, the Lord warns you, no, that's not how to live life. Lose it all. Give it all up. Whatever it is, whatever's holding you back, don't let things and stuff 
and your own goals and ambitions trap you. John 12 is particularly pertinent because he, he says this language in, in the, the context of except a corn of wheat falling into the ground and abiding alone, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And this, this idea that, but that by death there is this gain. So it was for Christ. Christ also helps men to properly evaluate their possessions. I must be quick with this. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? So you, you, have, you can have the whole world. Here are possessions. Here, here's how to evaluate possessions. You have the whole world. You gain everything the world has to offer, but you lose yourself. You're cast away. So you draw up two columns and you ask yourself what you're prepared to exchange for your soul. What will it take? What will it take for the exchange of your soul? Some relationship? Money? Some hobby that you know is wrong? You know what it took for a man who lived over three years in the presence of Christ? You know all it took? 30 pieces of silver. Exchanged his soul, handed it over for 30 pieces of silver. You think you're any smarter? Do you think you're any more protected than he was? The devil knows exactly where to attack you. He knows exactly what to offer you. The very thing that you're most likely to trade your soul for. He knows it. The promise of peace, of love and affection, of money, of wealth, of prestige. He knows what it is. And Christ helps men to properly evaluate their reputations. Verse 26, Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words... Of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Reputation. Willing to be ashamed of Christ, to walk away from Christ, to deny Christ, to do as Andy Stanley said. I shouldn't be naming him, but anyway, it's come out now. Andy Stanley, there a few miles down in Atlanta, embarrassed, embarrassed at the church. Seriously? Yes. You're embarrassed at people who are trying to live according to their conscience and the Word of God. You're embarrassed by their actions because they have certain convictions. And these men can substantiate their position by Scripture, but you're embarrassed by them. Which inadvertently means you're embarrassed by the words of Christ. Yes. And so your shame and your denial of him will result in his rejection of you when he comes. Oh, imagine it. Imagine it. Lord, Lord, have we not cast out devils in your name and done all these marvelous works and preached? Have we not done all of this? 
Yeah, but you rejected me as well. You were ashamed of me. So he will reject you. Imagine all. A life lived 70, 80, 90 years and come to the end and Christ says those horrifying words, depart from me. Then he says in verse 27, what most believe to be an indication that some of them will be around to see the fall of Jerusalem and they will see that all that he has said and declared, the veracity of all of his language by the fulfillment of certain prophecy. Let me just close with this. Have you, have you understood what it is to be a disciple? Have, have, have we missed the mark tonight or have you gotten it? Your eternity depends on this. So it's not just about mental assent. It's not just agreement that Jesus is the Son of God. All of that's important, but it's also it's a coming after Him. Yes, do, do you go after Him? <laughs> do you go after Him? Do you follow Him? Does your life look as a Christian life ought? And does it have moments of denial, expressions of denial? Does this is tempting to say this thing, but I won't say it because it's the wrong thing to say. Or I won't do this because it's the wrong thing to do. Or I will do this as uncomfortable as it is. This person needs me to witness to them, so I'm going to speak up. All those things of denial of self, of the Christian life, of constantly suppressing the rising power of your own desires. And submitting to the will of the Lord. And when the persecution comes and the hardship comes and the loss and everything else, you, you take up your cross. You embrace it as part of the suffering of being loyal to Christ. Oh, I hope we haven't missed it tonight. May the Lord give us grace. Let's bow together in prayer. say to you tonight that this, these are some of the hardest words to preach. I can't read them without analyzing my own life and asking myself questions. Is that wrong? Am I wrong to be sobered by this language? Or is there a solemnity about them that's designed to cause us to take stock and stop resting in some mere outward profession that is empty, that has no substance, that has no evidence. Lord, take your word, I pray, 
Just take your word. Whatever has been of man, let it fall to the ground. But if this passage could only bury itself into all of our hearts and remain there, not to be hidden, but to, to constantly keep us with a clear understanding of what it is to be a disciple, what it is to be a Christian. Lord, I pray that you will graciously, graciously help us to embrace self-denial, not in an ascetic way, not in a false pietism, but recognizing that Jesus Christ calls us to die. As Paul said, I die daily. And Lord, I pray that thou will graciously help us to suppress the rising powers of the old nature and not give in to the powers of carnality and worldliness. Grant, Lord, that the devil will not find something in us that he can easily draw us astray. Lord, we need, our eternity depends on it. We will be lost if we are not found wholly following Thee. And I pray that Thy words will be so written in our hearts that we will constantly call them to remembrance and make every decision in light of the reality that I must always follow the Master. For if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So God, I pray, graciously help us all here to soberly consider Thy word to walk according to its light. Bless us, our fellowship together as we part. Go with us to our homes. Strengthen us for this week. Bless the food provided downstairs. Nourish us spiritually and physically. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore.